This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Chris Gennady, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, filling in this week for uh, Jeremy Schwartz, the usual host. Uh, co-host is Wharton finance professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services and that Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategy nor tied to an offer or sale of any investment product. The views of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree or any of its affiliates. So, Today on the show, uh, we have an extra exciting guest, Blake Hyman, uh, my colleague uh, based over in London. We're going to be talking a lot about artificial intelligence. But before we do that, we need to hear from Professor Siegel. A lot going on this week, Professor, in uh, the macro economy. Yeah, Chris, and what a week. My God. Um, and it's not over yet. Uh, well, let's, let's, uh, let's kind of... Uh, talk about the last couple of days, particularly, first of all, this morning's labor market report. Um, I thought it was very good news in the sense that it gives some breathing room for the Fed and supports a 25 basis points increase instead of a 50. Yes, uh, to be sure, the change in non-farm pro- payroll was very robust. Uh, 311 was about, uh, you know, 80,000 above um, expectations. And there was only a tiny revision downward to the mammoth uh, 517,000 that we saw in uh, the month of, uh, of, of January. But uh, the details um, were much softer. First of all, it was, uh, you know, very concentrated again in the leisure and restaurant place. In fact, manufacturing payrolls declined by 4,000. That is a first decline uh, in two years uh, on manufacturing payrolls. Uh, A good piece of news, unemployment rate ticked up from the super tight 3.4%, which was in a 60-year low, to 3.6. That's two-tenths of a percentage point uh, higher. Um, the average hourly earnings, which expected to be three tenths, some people thought four tenths was only two tenths of a percent. Also, year over year was below expectation. And the work week, which really rose an unbelievable uh, three tenths of a percent in Jan, uh, three tenths of a week uh, in in January, and I uh, tied the all time record. I said that's likely to be revised downward, and it was. It's up only two tenths, and it fell an, another one tenth uh, this um, month. Uh, so w- when you when you, you know, take it as a whole, it definitely shows a, a slowing down. Also, if you remember, if you recall, just yesterday the initial uh, jobless claims came in for the first time over uh, two hundred thousand. That also um, shows a little bit solid. So we're beginning to see a cool down. Of the labor market, by the way, the uh, the U6 unemployment rate, which is a broader one, um, uh, also moved up two tenths of a percent from 6.6. So and the participation rate went up, which meant people are getting into the labor force, um, uh, looking for jobs. There are jobs out there. Yes, the jolts report uh, that we saw on Wednesday was still tight. Uh, one should note that the Jolts report, the the, the uh, data I had is that the the participation rate of firms in the Jolts report is way down, and that number has a big standard deviation. Um, uh, nonetheless, um, uh, this does give breathing room. I mean, it's not in and of itself a slam dunk case for 25 basis points. What com- continues to push the compass to 25 basis points. Uh, in my opinion, is what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. Um, 
you know, this bank went from a, uh, you know, a situation of, um, of, of, of basically, uh, uh, you know, full value over 200 uh, 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 billion dollars of market value down to um, uh, nothing as the California regulators have closed uh, the bank. Now, um, my expectation is all deposits would be paid off. I do think the banking system is extremely strong, but it's the psychology Regional banks were hit really hard. Now, they have come back as of noon, as we're talking here on Friday. Uh, the market has come back. But this has to be in the minds of um, uh, uh, the Fed, uh, uh, that the inversion of the yield curve for those who held treasuries, uh, uh, the capital losses are going to cause some banks some trouble. Uh, maybe they weren't diversified properly. Uh, you know, but it shows you how quickly a run on a medium sized bank can turn into uh, let's close the bank. Um, uh, this just is going to hit headlines, especially with the crypto uh, bank uh, failure. Now, two banks, although one was much more traditional than the other. Um, I think the Fed officials are going to get some phone calls, uh, some concerns. Don't go too fast. Um, I'm betting for 25 now much more confidently. However, one should note that next week is another big week. We still have two weeks until the FOMC. Next week on Tuesday, we get the uh, CPI. The following day, uh, we get the PPI and we get retail sales for the month of February. Those are also going to be very, very important reports and another uh, 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 initial jobless claims which will confirm or not the jump that we saw on Wednesday in in the jobless claims. One, of course, uh, we've been saying all along that the CPI report contains a lot of backward-looking data and to suss out what is the forward-looking data that is the new data uh, is not always so easy. Uh, as you know, Chairman Powell is now looking at what's called X energy, uh, X food, and X rent. <laughs> um, um, uh, my my feeling is is that you know that covers a, a smaller and smaller group of uh, of um, of uh, of uh, goods and services uh, that is involved. Commodity prices are still going down everywhere. I mean, touched new lows. Uh, this morning bounced back a little bit. Uh, every uh, commodity uh, grouping is is going down. Mortgage rates down seven and a quarter on 30-year fixed is going to depress the housing market in the month of March uh, and into uh, April. Um, you know, my feeling is, do they want to jump up to 50 given signs of easing the labor market? Um, and uh, what is happening with the banking system. My feeling is no. However, very tight reports and initial jobless claims going again below 200,000 are going to uh, embolden the hawks on the committee. Um, and uh, who knows? We might get the first dissent vote uh, in more than a year, year and a half uh, uh, of uh, on the uh, FOMC. I, I actually think the first dissent well, was a, a, a March uh, last year when Bullard wanted to go 50 basis points to start out the tightening uh, that, of course, has uh, proceeded so rapidly through 2022. So, so Professor, at the at the end of the day, uh, even, even in a week like this, which feels like uh, at least three or four weeks uh Mixed into one because you, you've got, you know, Chairman Powell speaking and then so much new information comes out between then and now. You're you're not in a position where you're really entertaining 50 or thinking, you know, the uh, the end, the end goal here should be that much higher. Obviously, all the prognosticators are putting out their projections after I think it was Tuesday. They were all sort of. Uh, upwardly adjusting uh, various things, but you're 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 saying 25 is still reasonable, and in in your mind, is the end game still uh, in yeah. a similar position? Well, you know, I think in the uh, the you know in the 72 hours since his testimony, things have changed. He did not know the employment report. He certainly did not know. I don't think anyone knew what that was going on in SVB Bank. 
and he's going to get calls, you know, from banks saying, you know, this is just put scared in our depositors. You know, the deposit insurance is only 250000 It should be much higher. So everyone, and, you know, a lot of people have much more than 250000 in the bank. They say, should I move? You know, people like Peter Tile and, and other well-known, you know, uh, uh, venture capitalists say, you yeah, know, move everything around. Um, you know, the, the churn is uh, in and of itself, and it should be unnecessary. One, one should remember that, even after the financial crisis, no depositor lost money, even those over 250000 Um, And the Fed, in my opinion, Chairman Powell should come out right now, said he thinks the banking system is sound. He stands ready to loan to them. He thinks their credit. He should come out in a calming way right now. That's I know it's the quiet period, but this is uh, something that will concern people and um, I, uh, you know, he's not commenting, you know, necessarily on rates. He's counting on the fact of his opinion on the safety of people's deposits. And he should do that, in my opinion. Um, and we will see whether a statement comes forth uh, over the weekend or not. Uh, that's why what Powell said is real old news right now, given the, the labor market report, given uh, jobless claims, given SVB Bank, uh, given what reports we're going to get next week. Uh, as I've often emphasized, um, uh, the Fed decides about a week to 10 days of, 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 uh, uh, beforehand what it wants to present, given the data. And the latest data is the one that it looks at. And uh, Powell had none of that data when uh, he prepared the report uh, to the Senate uh, Finance Committee. Well, well Professor, uh, thank you very much uh, for the insight this week. And we'll certainly look forward to, uh, to next week when we have even yeah. more data. A absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. All right. So sitting back here, uh, I'd like to introduce our guest, Blake Hyman, Senior Associate Quantitative Research at Wisdom Tree. That's that's really just his uh, formal title. Uh, I think of him as uh, you know an AI guru, uh, an expert on the topic. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about artificial intelligence. Blake, I'd love for you to uh, give the audience a you know just a brief sense of uh, your background here. You know how how'd you come to Wisdom Tree and how'd you come uh, into the AI space? Thanks, Chris. Um, happy to be here and appreciate the uh, the intro. Um, so, yeah, I joined Wisdom Tree about two years ago. Prior to that, I was on a quant risk desk um, at another firm. And prior to that, I had done a lot of work just in the analytics space. So data has been in my blood since essentially I was doing internships uh, during my undergraduate um, studies. And throughout that experience, I had, you know, been exposed to the different statistical methods that people were using uh, back in those days, whether it's, whether it's just simple regression, um, maybe a little bit of like time series forecasting, things along those lines. And having been exposed to that, I just was and it was so I'll be clear, I was I was more in the insurance space at that time um, early on and kind of experimenting a, a lot of different areas. Uh, commercial real estate as well. And, you know, forecasting was always something that was relevant in these other industries. And I just couldn't help myself to think, okay, uh, how could this be applied towards, you know, identifying underval undervalued stocks, um, you know, things along those lines. So I started to experiment with regress regressions and other statistical techniques, focused my, my undergraduate studies on that, and then um, entered into the workplace uh, and just kept tailoring my my focus into the financial domain. And then before I know it, uh, ended up on a quant team uh, where I was able to really uh, run free with those things and then decided to pursue a master's degree uh, focused in machine learning and AI, uh, where I was you know introduced to even more of the capabilities of AI and ML beyond just uh, the financial domain and really have kind of run with it since then where you know, there's all these new and exciting things happening in the space. It's actually very tough to even keep up. Um, but, you know, it's trying to keep up as much as I can and um, stay, you know, very rooted in the quantitative stuff as uh, my training has, uh, you know, really focused on focused on that aspect of it. Uh, but, yeah, there's there's a lot happening in the space and it's uh, super exciting. So, Blake, as you look at what's happening 
uh, in today's world where probably the reason, or at least a reason, that many people might be thinking a bit more about artificial intelligence than, say, they might have been uh, last year uh, has to do with ChatGPT, essentially one of one of the fastest, if not the fastest ever application to get from zero downloads to uh, essentially a million uh, downloads. And you look at something like that and you think, the more I read, the more I realize a lot of work goes into it before we even hear or even have the option to download such a thing. But do you look at it and see ChatGPT as a game changer or do you look at it and see AI is growing all the time and in reality, you know, a year from now, we might be talking about something different because it's just going to be a non-linear pace of advances across the entire space. I think it'll be the latter. It'll be exactly what you just said. Something new will happen and um, we'll, our attention will be drawn to that. Uh, I would say chat GPT is different in the sense that, you know, I guess first things first, I would call it, it's a, it's a very big milestone uh, in generative AI because I, it, because the reason is there's this is the first one I think that has really gone mainstream with like the masses of individuals where you don't necessarily have to be a practitioner to understand it, use it, and see its value. Um, or maybe 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 I'll take back the understand that I'm not sure if everybody that uses it understands it. Um, but I think a lot of people can access it and see its value. And I think that's what's different this time with Chat GPT, whereas a lot of the other th- other um, milestones in the history of artificial intelligence were probably a little bit more, uh, you know, focused within the the practitioner and the, you know, academic space where, you know, the release of AlexNet uh, for image, for actual image classification in, in terms of deep learning that happened in the early 2010s uh, was, a, was a key, uh, a key milestone. You had the transformer model architecture, and I'm, this is a, a, a deep learning speak uh, type of model architecture, not the transformers that you're thinking of um, when it comes to the movies. But uh, that was, I really believe, released in, or the white paper was released in 2017. So that was a, a really big milestone. And then there's a few more that happened in between. And then here we are with ChatGPT being released to you know the public and everybody be able to, being able to see you know all of these things. Uh, you know, actually result in an, in an outcome where they can see the value. So right now, this is the thing. I think people are, you know, very excited about it. Um, and I'm sure that because this does follow an exponential like growth curve, that something new will be happening in the next year. And, you know, as long as we we continue to, you know, sh- allow public access to these, these new and exciting tools, I think um, there'll be something new to be talking about in, in, in the very near term. We had uh, a former guest, uh, Jeremy and I interviewed uh, Haim Israel uh, from Bank of America Research. And I remember him reminding us all that, uh, you know, you go back 20 years, we didn't even have smartphones. Uh, The iPhone that I'm recording this uh, very podcast and uh, SiriusXM program on didn't didn't even exist yet, hadn't been invented. And, you know, if you would have said do you predict that in 20 years there's going to be a system where you tell it uh, based on a certain prompt to write some original text that it could do anything other than spout gibberish? Um, we would have probably said it's it's impossible. There's there's no way. So it's uh, amazing how the human mind just has this uh, this issue of sort of thinking about exponential advances and exponential growth. Blake, I wanted to drill in a little. Um, You mentioned GPUs, and obviously when you think of GPUs, you think of NVIDIA. And in looking at the state of semiconductors today, uh, you're seeing interesting things going on in the market. You're seeing, you know, NVIDIA is is just almost branded as the AI uh, company. You know, if you want the good chips, you're most likely going to NVIDIA. Uh, And you've got this sort of demarcation, this line in the sand between Intel and basically everyone else in that Intel recently had to announce it's cutting its dividend, uh, cutting costs in other ways. 
uh, perennially behind on delivering certain, uh, you know, pieces of hardware. Um, when, when you're looking at the chip space, Blake, um, do you think a company like NVIDIA is really that far ahead of Intel? Or do you think that Intel sort of as the market leader for so long gets, uh, you know, treated almost a bit unfairly uh, in uh, its activities? That's a great question. Um, I would say I don't know if I have a a strong answer to say that I don't know if I have a strong opinion to say that Intel is significantly behind. And I'll just kind of speak to what I do know because I really don't know how to you know uh, pinpoint you know the the gap that there is um, because there's the gap in the sense of you know the manufacturing gap, which is you know the advancement of the chips and you know the actual you know, how small in terms of nanometers these chips are being designed for the sense of how quickly the computations can take place on these chips, um, which, you know, points back to third party TSMC as being the main producer that can actually produce these advanced chips at scale. So in terms of design, I think NVIDIA is in the lead, um, you know, probably behind. So I, I would say the other aspect is I think Intel is a little bit more diversified. So, you know, focusing on CPUs, there's a little bit more um, of that, uh, you know, direct to consumer type of, um, you know, uh, not maybe not direct to consumer isn't the right w way to describe it, but your your personalized computer type of um, hardware. Whereas I think NVIDIA and, you know, AMD as well um, focus a lot more on the GPUs and the in terms of GPUs, like the graphics processing units. And, you know, traditionally, if we kind of think about GPUs, you know, it's a something to make your computer have a really nice, you know, beautiful, colorful resolution that's, you know, quick to refresh to allow you to do gaming and things that, you know, are in terms like are just so it can keep up with the, the gaming refresh rate. So you're not having uh, lags in your screens or flashes or whatever it may be, if you've ever experienced that uh, with a, you know, a, essentially an overloaded GPU on your personal computer. But um, what's interesting th is about these GPUs is that they're essentially designed to optimize the calculations for um, essentially your your pixels on the screen. So that's your RGB values, red, green, blue, um, in an in a large matrix. And to update those screen values quickly, you have to update the numbers in those RGB values. So for AI and for all the different calculations that are you know needed to uh, update these models and train them quickly and efficiently, and then also to make the predictions uh, quickly and efficiently in terms of inference. You know, these type of calculations or these type of this type of hardware lends itself extremely useful for the calculations that are used for uh, within deep learning, because deep learning essentially is doing a bunch of multidimensional array math to propagate errors around to update weights in these models to then. Uh, create a model that is has these you know billions of parameters that you hear about um, to then eventually make you know predictions or output text output a new image whatever it may be if you're thinking in terms of generative AI so I would say like just looking at you know the stats I think that there was a stat that came across that of the top 500 or so you know supercomputers that are out there I think a hundred or so of them have AMD processors. They didn't list that was an AMD quote, so like there might be some bias there. Um, and they did, I didn't have the data for NVIDIA, but for a NVIDIA um, anecdote, the uh, chat GPT was trained on NVIDIA chips. And I believe the most advanced supercomputer is using NVIDIA chips. Uh, the A100 and H100 are the some of the most advanced ones that they offer. And um, so I think if you just kind of look at, you know, where the innovation is taking place, it's taking place on, on the hardware that these companies are designing, and it's not necessarily taking place on Intel. So uh, I don't know if that defines the gap, but uh, it does, you know, have it does say something about the, the type of technology that they're that they're uh, producing. And, and admittedly, too, I, I don't want us to fall into the trap where, you know, we're talking about semiconductors and we end up talking about companies that probably everyone who's listening, they've already heard of NVIDIA, most likely Intel, uh, AMD, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, TSMC. Um, these are some of the world's largest companies and, you know, modern life uh, really depends on the foundation of silicon that uh, either they design or they create. But Blake, I know you follow a broader semiconductor market. So I'd love 
for you to, you know, hit us and, and hit the audience with uh, a few semiconductor companies that, uh, you know, you've come across that you think are doing interesting things, but obviously they're not at the NVIDIA level. They're, they're not in the public consciousness. People may not have heard of them, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be thinking of them in the context uh, of AI. What, what companies would you be able to introduce us to today? Um, I'll I'll highlight one that comes top of mind because I naturally have this uh, affinity for computer vision Um, and because it, you know, lends itself, I mean, it is essentially lends itself back to the deep learning space, which I really, uh, you know, find fascinating. And it's what essentially all of these new and exciting models are, you know, they are a form of this. So, um, you know, the explainability of these deep learning models may or may not be there yet, but it is essentially you know, why we have chat GPT and, and the like. So one company that I'm thinking of here is, is Ambrella. So they focused on, they focus on computer vision chips. Uh, so they, you know, the, the chips that they're designing are advanced enough in the sense to have these calculations happen uh, extremely quickly, that it can happen real time on the road for autonomous vehicles. And if you go to their website, they they give some great examples on the uh, something that we called image, image segmentation, which is identifying objects in space. So there's there's one thing of just actually just taking in an image and an input and being able to see that okay, um, here's real time video coming in, and I'm able to see colors changing, whatever it may be. That's like step one. The next step is doing something called image segmentation, which is actually separating out the relevant objects in the image and classifying them as certain things. Um, So it might be something like classifying another vehicle driving alongside the vehicle or pedestrians walking in the street, um, a tree, a pole, um, actually being able to identify even, say, the line on the road next to the car uh, to, you know, understand and make sure that understanding what that line actually means and you're not going over it or not getting confused that it's representing something else. Uh, The the actual colors, this is an an extremely complex problem. Um, The actual colors also play a role. So, and I'll just give like a little anecdotal story that I heard a while back um, around Tesla's um, training for their autonomous vehicles is, there was a point in time when they were they would they were testing the autonomous uh, driving and found that whenever the sun sun was setting in on this one testing uh, test range or test road I don't know what you want to call it but it, it's just, you know whatever pathway they were taking um, it, the vehicle would end up taking a left and they're like why is it taking a left on the straight the straight uh, road right here this is so confusing where did that come from. And it came down to how the model was trained in the past and the fact that it failed to uh, properly understand um, the the differentiation of these colors. And what had happened is there was something that was purple. I don't remember what exactly it was, but there was something that was purple there. And where the training took place, there was a they, they always did it at sunset and it ended up having like a nice purple sunset. And that ended up, and at that point in time, was generally where it ended up taking left turns on this curve in the mountains or wherever it was. So what happens is, the training significantly impacted, you know, what what the what the AV was doing on a completely different course because it was unable to differentiate, you know, the the environment and understanding. Okay, this is the sunset. This is the color. This is the background to segment the image from, okay, this is, you know, an actual light pole that's painted purple or whatever color it may be to be able to react properly to its environment. So the ability to to do proper image segmentation uh, when you're actually doing, um, you know, employing computer vision in these vehicles is, you know, extremely important. I think uh, Umbrella has a, you know, a, a an opportunity here. And um, some of their recent earnings calls have, you know, highlighted some partnerships they have as being, uh, you know, some of the focal parts of the autonomous driving systems of other large firms like Continental. Excellent. I mean, I, th- I think that's important for us all in the sense that, you know, whenever there's big news, something like ChatGPT, uh, we tend to all gravitate towards some of the biggest companies in the world, the the top 10 holdings of the NASDAQ, more or less. 
And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's worthwhile to think about these firms like Amberella that without someone like you, Blake, uh, we, we just may not uh, naturally go in that direction. Looking at where we are in the space, probably the biggest reason, the biggest reason that we would have someone like Blake uh, on the show, uh, it really comes down uh, to data. We talk a lot about ChatGPT. Uh, it's amazing to consider that it took Netflix 3.5 years to, meet, to reach 1 million users. It took Instagram, we're obviously quite familiar with that one, three months to get to 1 million users. And for ChatGPT, it took five days to reach that uh, milestone. So that's not a typo. Uh, it's really uh, incredible. OpenAI's ChatGPT has had over 1 billion cumulative web visits since it launched in November of 2022. And at over 8 billion, there are now, did you know, there are now more AI digital voice assistants than people on the planet. These are just some statistics uh, we had Again, on a, on a prior show, uh, Ham Israel from uh, Bank of America uh, Securities and uh, his group put out some of these uh, statistics recently. Uh, one of them that blew my mind, uh, it said, we will generate more data in the next two days than all data created between the dawn of humanity and the year 2000. Uh, another one, machine-generated data accounted for over 30% of internet data in 2020. Uh, and Blake was mentioning uh, Amberella and its application to autonomous vehicles. Autonomous vehicles will generate as much as 40 terabytes of data an hour, equivalent to an iPhone's use over 3,000 years. Uh, so absolutely incredible in terms of how much data we as a society generate, transmit, uh, store and something that I know Blake and I talk about all the time is how really AI is a tool that can be applied to almost any industry. And, and Blake, as you're sort of looking across the various industries that comprise the economy as we know it, if you had to pick one and say you think this is an excellent opportunity for AI to potentially disrupt, to do something uh, differently, to do something better. What industry or what's uh, an interesting example in your eyes that you might select? That's a great question. Um, there are actually so many. Um, you know, I might highlight a couple before diving into one. I mean, if you think about you know, in the financial uh, institution space, there's around, you know, the back end, you know, operational of the operations of the back office, essentially streamlining things um, within like the robotics process automation space, which is a little like less exciting of the AI um, application there as that's a little bit more rules based. Um, you know, you even have, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning for uh, understanding, you know, the actual you know whether whether or not to lend uh, money to an individual. Um, though there's aspects there. There's some uh, you know even the generative AI aspect of things. Whether it's for you know virtual environments for gaming, um, for simulation and engineering. Um, there's so many places it can go. I think uh, the thing that I would say I'm really excited about, and I think has kind of blown up over the last couple of years, is the um, the application in biotech. Um, the I, I don't know if you've seen this, but DeepMind has come out with something called AlphaFold, uh, where essentially it can predict the 3D structure of proteins. So um, where this comes into play in terms of like drug discovery is with the understanding of you. Uh, so I guess I'll give some background here. <clears throat> so a when you're when you're coming when you're analyzing, you know, different diseases and trying to come up with uh, different, you know, remedies or cures, uh, you essentially, what happens is in, in the underlying cell processes is uh, it's essentially all ran by proteins. So when you want to create a drug to uh, offer some sort of cure or some sort of remedy, what you end up doing is finding something that binds to a protein to either block it, to block that process that's causing the ailment, or to uh, have that have that um, molecule bind the protein to cause it to react, to cause another downstream process to, you know, essentially be beneficial to, you know, helping, you know, 
remove the ailment, improve the situation, whatever it may be. So this concept of being able to predict the 3D structure of proteins and the 3D structure of uh, molecules has made drug discovery significantly faster because they no longer have to essentially, what they do is essentially take uh, take a look at an, an amino acid, a potential, a potential amino acid structure, which is essentially, I'll just call a long string of letters in for us to think about and have to and think that, okay, this could be a potential molecule that would end up being beneficial to, that could end up binding this protein and resulting in a beneficial outcome. So, but the issue is, is when you're inputting that amino acid string or long, that long list of, uh, of letters, you end up not knowing how it will, how it will exactly look in three dimensional form, which means it may or may not bind to that target protein, um, in the cell. So, Having the capability to predict these three-dimensional structures using deep learning, uh, you know, keyword we've thrown around a lot, um, has really advanced the uh, the the process for drug discovery. So um, it's taken that, like, if you imagine a drug funnel, it really narrows it down significantly because you don't have to take the time for every single amino acid se sequence that you want to test. You don't necessarily have to take the time to run a test in a lab to actually see how it forms a three-dimensional structure before you would test it in an actual cell against an actual protein to see the outcome. You can now make that prediction uh, with an, an accurate model like AlphaFold has come up with and understand that, oh, this you know didn't end up looking like uh, it's going to bind with what I had envisioned. So back to the drawing board, let's try something new. Um, so this is one of the key applications that I think is extremely exciting. Um, and as well as, you know, there's so many others within the generative AI space where, uh, you know, this type of concept can be used elsewhere. It's uh, it's an interesting point in the sense, going back to some of those statistics, health data is a big category. Each person apparently will generate enough health data in their lifetime to fill 300 million books, the equivalent of the New York Public Library six times over. Genomic data, uh, a lot of which, uh, when Blake says, you know, a protein is a, you know, a string of amino acids, uh, uh, essentially you're in a position where you're basically saying DNA is the instruction set. It really just represents data. Genomic data is the fastest growing database in the world. And by 2025, genomic data will surpass YouTube and Twitter combined. Um, so it's absolutely the case, not just because of the pandemic when we would talk about Moderna and the spike protein and coming up with uh, the mRNA vaccines and how uh, AI and the management of data could could contribute uh, there. Uh, but it's much broader than that, getting to a point where, in theory, at some point in the future, everyone could have their own versions of customized therapeutics and customized medicine. Um, but Blake, uh, we'd be remiss to not go back and uh, double-click on financial services. Uh, it is behind the markets here, uh, nonetheless. And um, something I'd be curious to get your, your take on is it feels like a lot of the articles, they come out and they talk about, you know, making the lending decision, using AI to encapsulate data, probably connected or uh, collected through, you know, secu social security numbers and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, make the prediction is the business going to pay back the loan? Is the person going to pay back the loan? We need to mitigate uh, certain types of bias in those data sets. This is absolutely important. I agree. But, you know, a lot of us probably would say, why don't they write about using AI to beat the market? In your opinion, Blake, can you use artificial intelligence and machine learning to come out and turn around and build an investment strategy that actually makes money? Yes. Um, I mean, Jim Simons and uh, Renaissance Technologies does it. So I would say most definitely a yes. And to, I mean, even to extrapolate the example, just to kind of simplify it down, because there's, gonna, there's a lot of people that would essentially say, oh, it can't be applied. It's too challenging of a problem. You could argue that for biology. Like, think about how complex DNA is and how much data you just described there. Like, the fact that we're able to do what we can in biology now is, you know, an example of how 
you know, how AI can really solve extremely complex problems that to the human eye seem to be just complete chaos. And there's no way to structure, like create a structured, you know, way of thinking around it. So, um, and to, exa- uh, you know, kind of extend on your little, the, exa- the, the simple example of lending is you can almost take that same approach uh, for for companies and looking at their uh, looking at their fixed income issuances. So there's like you know a small example that you take a you know the similar type of inputs, just change it from a person to now you know a commercial entity, and you can you can essentially kind of you know replicate that type of process there. So I mean, and that's just that's kind of like the bottom up approach. Now, if you kind of want to take things from a top down approach, which I think is extremely interesting, is that. We have um, in the in the, fin- in the financial world, we're we're familiar with factors, and we um, a lot of people live, breathe, and kind of die by the factors. And I would say, though they, you know, the re- research is phenomenal on factors. We have to remember that the factor model is a linear model, and what AI, where AI, you know, offers an advancement is that it it essentially allows us to create, you know, complex nonlinear models that do a good job there can do a good job of essentially replicating the you know probability distribution of what the world looks like so the the complex model that produces the three-dimensional structure of these proteins is not a linear model where you know ax plus y equals b or whatever like um the the model itself is going to be significantly more complex with so many more parameters, the 175 billion plus parameters that we're talking about with uh, GPT-3 and ChatGPT is even more, I believe. Um, so you hear about all these parameters and it, what it does is allow us to model a, a complex nonlinear function to model the world. So in my mind, there's no reason that we could not be able to model the market. And it may not be you know, the entire market, but there's, there, I'm sure there's certain segments that, you know, if you get the proper data sets that are driving those markets and you make sure that that's, um, you know, essentially interpreted uh, in terms of inputs into a model, like you can, I think, I believe you can do this. So um, I, this is one of the things that I'm probably most passionate about. And uh, if you can't hear it in my voice um, and most excited for in the future of financial services, because the people that have hacked it have really, uh, you know, kept it close to the chest, as you can as you can see why. So just to remind everyone, we're listening uh, to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Chris Gennady, and today we are joined by Blake Hyman uh, talking about artificial intelligence. Blake, um, to sort of jump off on your last comment, um, Admittedly, as a non-technical person myself, I've, I feel like I've been noticing a trend in the sense that, you know, a few years ago, maybe it was exciting to have a model with, uh, you know, 100 million, a billion parameters. Uh, you, you just noted uh, GPT-3, 175 billion parameters. I know uh, Meta has their, um, or at least aspirations toward the uh, AI research supercluster, where uh, they're they're gonna. Be trying to train, uh, you know, models on uh, exabytes of data, uh, a trillion plus parameters. So, in in essence, in your view, looking at it, is really the name of the game here just building bigger and bigger models, and that's it? Or is is there more nuance to it than that? There there have even been articles in like the journal Nature that have come out within the last week that have sort of tried to uh, to attack this question because again, like. A, a lay person could just be looking and say, okay, eventually there's going to be a 10 trillion parameter model and maybe that's the singularity and uh, the Terminator uh, moment. But uh, I, I personally have an intuition that that's not uh, necessarily correct, but I'd love uh, your take on it. Yeah, there's a, so there's a lot of different threads we can go down here. Um, so I'll, I'll cover the first high level piece, which is <clears throat> the number of the number of parameters. So when you're when you're building a model, you have to keep in mind model complexity and comparing that to, you know, your the amount of data you have for your problem, because you essentially don't want too complex of a model that, you know, takes too long to one takes too long to train. And if you don't have enough inputs for it, you're essentially tweaking way too many parameters that uh, you don't have enough information to actually 
properly update to come up with a a good value for that parameter. So um, I don't know if I can give a good example, but um, it'd be like you know if you have a hundred parameter model with you know ten observations, like you really ha don't have enough observations to actually properly update those hundred parameters. So you're much better off choosing a much simpler model that may have one or two parameters to then come up with a, a reasonable, simple model that, you know, given what you have is going to give you the best outcome. Now, thinking about these, you know, billion uh, parameter type of models, like one of the key things here is, um, I guess I'll go to two different, two additional threads here. One is overfitting. Uh, so essentially what you can, what you can do uh, when you have these uh, massive models is you can essentially overfit to the problem itself and to the data that you do have. So if you are um, in that sense, it's going to do very well on the things that it has seen, but it might do completely terrible on things that it hasn't seen. So in that sense, it's not that useful of a model because the point of the model is to you know do well in all situations, not just the things that it's seen. So we're so when you're trying to structure these things, you're always trying to you know input data that's as representative of the universe of outcomes and the universe of situations that the model may encounter and you're you're tr not trying to overfit towards the amount of data it's seen if it if an image classification model has seen 500 dogs and 10 cats it's naturally going to have a bias to classify things as dogs so you know the amount of training that takes place on these things and you know the parameters do make a difference here um, as the third piece, which I think is uh, important here when you're talking about all the, these very large, like, and I'm kind of focusing in on uh, in keeping large language models in, in the back of my mind here as I'm speaking to this, is that they're extremely expensive to train. Um, I, you know, I believe it's in the range of like hundreds of millions of dollars to actually train something like chat GPT. And so it's not necessarily accessible for everybody to do that. Um, so where I see the world going is there might be a few firms that have the capability and the expertise to train useful models with this many parameters and then taking, you know, essentially whatever the most useful model is and back to the model complexity thing, we don't want to overdo it uh, or else it just, you know, training times blow up. Uh, it, it, the parameters may not be, it might be harder to actually get the number of parameters to be properly fitted. So what ends up at, what would the, I, where I see the world going with this is we have firms that create these uh, large models. And then what we end up doing is there are other firms that will end up creating uh, essentially smaller versions of those models that would then be, or it's not versions of them, but smaller models on top of those that left to make use of something we call transfer learning that are more optimized towards a specific use case. And in that sense, you essentially get the advanced, you know, knowledge base of something like ChatGPT, but then you can specifically leverage that towards focused use cases. So that, so that, that AI can operate significantly better in, you know, maybe it's a robotics application and it's identifying, you know, I'll say the state that it's in. And when I say state, I mean like a state of an environment to know that, oh, the trash is full. Now I need to take the trash out. So, or this person said a phrase to me about the trash being full. There could be, you know, a hundred different ways that I describe the trash being full. Um, and it could be, you know, verbal, it could be nonverbal, whatever it may be. But, you know, having that large language model on the back end to then, you know, drive the outcome on the front end, uh, you know, could be a key thing. And as a, you know, an example of this, I would say if you go to Hugging Face is a popular uh, website for various uh, uh, deep learning models like this. And they essentially provide a bunch of out of the box solutions that are tailored towards image classification, text classification, um, you name it across the board. And they have these small little models that can be leveraged for these specific use cases. Now, connecting it to the large language model, I haven't necessarily seen that yet, but um, I see, I think that's where the world will be heading in the future. And Blake, as we uh, get to the end of our time together um, and recognizing we can talk about AI for the next uh, 10 days straight, probably with a uh, little to no break, 
if people are sitting there thinking it's an exciting topic, we know a lot of the market already has been thinking it's an exciting topic. You, you mentioned sort of this demarcation. You've got certain large companies with certain resources, maybe in computational power and wherewithal to uh, juggle all these different parameters. But at the same time, you've got these smaller companies doing specialized, uh, potentially exciting things. So if you're just giving people ideas on the types of things they should look at if they're starting to go from this is an exciting thing to maybe I should start doing some investment research, how do you balance that uh, distinction between some of the world's largest companies versus some of these newer players in the space? So I think this kind of comes down to the specific use case and whether or not these firms actually have a, um, I'll say a corner of the market and whatever they're trying, they're, they're essentially trying to do. And the challenge with this is, you know, you have these large players that whether may or may not be, you know, under scrutiny from regulatory uh, institutions to make sure that they're, they don't, they're not, you know, having some sort of monopoly monopoly. But until that type of stuff plays out, like I would say a lot of these are kind of, for lack of a better way to put it, acquisition plays because a lot of these large firms end up having so much cash. But um, but it's you know it is it is one of the things to pay attention to. And I would say if you focus on the use cases and where they uh, corner the market, and you know if they essentially have you know the best solution, and you know the revenue growth is there, and there's st statistics backing backing up uh, their actual the demand for their product. Um, I would say that's where you can really hone in and see that okay use case X or the the way of approaching problem Y uh, with this company and is, is the proper, is the better solution here. And that's how you would end up choosing that over an alternative. It's uh, it's it's definitely uh, a notable point in the discussion. Uh, and I know we we spend a lot of time on, on our team here thinking about exactly that in the sense that, you know, you take something like software that, is focused on you know designing chips like something a, a cadence or a synopsis might be making uh, and something that might be sensitive enough to be restricted from use uh, by a country like China uh, and you know putting a billion transistors on a tiny chip. You think of robotic process automation, uh, which a few years ago was white hot in terms of its focus, uh, lost a bit of, a bit of luster uh, more recently. But there's just so many use cases. Um, at the end of the day, we're constrained by time. So, Blake, I want to thank you for joining us on the program. Uh, and I want to thank all of our producers, including Dion Simpkins. Uh, and be sure to check out Behind the Markets uh, weekly. Uh, we're coming to you every week. Uh, and check us out as well on Twitter at BizRadio132. I'm Chris Gennady, and you've been listening to Behind the Markets. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.